Good morning. If you haven't had um, the pleasure of meeting me, and it is indeed your pleasure, um, my name is Jerome. I'm the Associate Minister here at St Paul's. Still new and... I did it again, didn't I? I did it on purpose. No, I was just testing, just checking, see whether you were listening, whether you were awake, and whether you knew where you were. Should I stand somewhere else? No, I'm all good. Um, so apart from those moments, um, I'm, I'm a great bloke. Um, great bloke, and it, I feel like my duty to sort of just catch anyone up that hasn't met me yet. I am, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate, I'm kind, I'm patient, loving, wise, I'm all these things and more. Um, there are moments, of course, uh, there are certain days when maybe the full expression of that isn't seen. I sometimes will wake up and have a sore neck or a sore back or my stomach's playing up or sinuses are playing up. And, and, uh, and, then, and then, of course, you're not going to get me at my best, um, but I am a great bloke. Um, we just sang about a great God. Yeah, I'm a great guy. And, um, of course, there's also uh, things like just, just little frustrations that occur that can also be a bit challenging sometimes and that can throw me off my game. Uh, and in those moments, I, I have to admit, in those moments I probably struggle to tolerate myself, let alone other people. Um, and, and other people, you know, other people. Other people have their own thoughts and ideas. That can be a bit annoying. Um, and... Um, and then children. My children haven't yet understood that I am the font of all wisdom and to be obeyed. Um, but my hope is that one day they will get there. And so on such days, I am not always a good bloke. Um, but on a good and perfect day, I am. Does that resonate with any of you? Do you, do you, you might not express it in quite the same way, but there is a sense in which you can see a better self. You can see a better self. And when things are not good, that better self isn't seen by you or others. The context of suffering examines us. It shines a light on the condition of our soul that helps us to see our motives, our deepest desires, and we have been looking at the life of Job. We have been examining him. The spotlight is on him. A man greatly suffering. Uh, a man of great wealth. A man of great importance. But not just that. An upright man. A man of integrity. A man who fears God. And in a moment he loses everything. His wealth, his family, his health. And in the context of his suffering, he is searching. But as we read his story, so are we. Up until this point in our series, uh, Job has been our suffering, our innocent suffering hero. He is the hero of the story. We have been looking to, in one sense, what is it like to be a righteous man suffering? How, how can we express ourselves before God in such situations? 
But despite the fact that um, he has been our hero, as we come to look at the character of Elihu, I might just suggest that we might need to rethink Job's position. We might need to just hold back. In the Old Testament, there are so many characters that we might look at and go, they prefigure Christ. They, they point towards Christ. That for Job, he is the innocent sufferer. And we know that Jesus is the ultimate innocent sufferer. Moses, that great prophet, but, but Jesus, a greater prophet yet. King David, a great king. Jesus, a greater king. But all of these people, we know that they actually fall short. And in what ways does Job fall short? So who is Elihu? Our title is A Young Man's Wisdom. For just a moment, I'm just going to look up at the youth at the back. And I want to tell you to just listen in for a moment. Elihu is a young person. Oh, he's probably not as young as you. But he's been waiting for his moment to speak. He's been listening to all these aged people speak, declaring their wisdom, and he's been waiting. And I'm going to suggest that Elihu plays a prophet-like role. And every church has a responsibility to raise up the next generation of people who will continue to play that prophetic role. The church is supposed to be a prophetic voice in the world. That is, to bring God's word to bear upon our times, our cultures, our contexts. And I'm suggesting that as we listen to Elihu this morning, we might find our ministry, our prophetic ministry, enhanced. We might be able to speak into the context that people find themselves, that our world finds itself. So who is Elihu? Who is Elihu and what issue does he take with Job? Well, in Job 32, verses 2 and 3, But Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzite, of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now, Elihu is generally lumped with the other friends. He's just maybe considered... At worst, a miserable comforter. At best, a non-character in the whole drama. He just pops in from nowhere and then he's not mentioned afterwards. The Lord doesn't mention him in his speech. The writer, the narrator doesn't mention him. Um, a lot of people will say his speeches are an insertion. Whether they are or not, it doesn't matter. It is part of what I believe to be inspired scripture. And my hope is that we will see how he prepares Job for hearing the Lord. He goes before the Lord. So he's angry because Job is justifying himself. That is, Job sees himself as innocent and just. Understand his circumstances is that God is unjust. So Elihu accuses Job of sinning 
by claiming that God is unjust. As evidence, Elihu um, quotes Job as saying, Job says, I am innocent, but God denies me justice. Although I am right, I am considered a liar. Although I am guiltless, his arrow inflicts an incurable wound. He also says, do you think this is just? You, Job, say, I am in the right, not God. And then from our reading today, there were also verses 8 and 11, which say something similar from chapter 33. So uh, so Job, Elijah has been listening and he's saying, this is what you've been saying, Job. You're innocent. God's unjust. But further to this, Elihu claims that Job is in rebellion to God. In what way? Well, in Job 34 verse 9, Elihu says, For he, Job, says, there is no profit in trying to please God. In Job 35 verse 3, Yet you, Job, ask God, what profit is it to me, and what do I gain by not sinning? So he's basically saying, I may as well just sin. God's unjust anyway. As Job comes to these points, Elihu wants to pick him up on this. And in truth, I'm quite sympathetic still for Job and his situation. But is there ever a point in our lament where there's a line that we cross? And maybe we've just stepped a little too far. Now, we know that Job's friends have accused Job of wrongful acts that were just not true. They were saying, or they they had to believe that Job was doing wrong things, that he was not good to the poor or to the widow or to the orphan. And yet, we know, the writer tells us, that Job was actually a righteous man, an upright man in his dealings with people. So Job's friends were not speaking the truth. So maybe Elihu's got it wrong here. How can we be sure that Elihu is onto something? Well, in the Lord's speech that follows Elihu, the Lord also rebukes Job for rejecting that he is just. He says in Job 40 verse 8, this is the Lord speaking to Job, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? That's exactly what Elihu's been saying. He's angry that Job is justifying himself rather than God. Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Maybe Elihu is onto something. He goes on uh, to defend the just, be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. It is unthinkable that God uh, do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. His speeches are long. He has a lot to say. I can't take us through them. There are six chapters of uninterrupted speech. But maybe I could quickly, uh, I don't have this up on a slide. Here's something that came out of our reading. This is Elihu's motive. Listen carefully. I I think it's genuine. He says in chapter 33, verse 32, if you have anything to say, answer me. He's talking to Job. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak up, for I want to vindicate you. 
That is, I want to justify you. His motive in pulling Job up is that he wants Job to, be, to, to stand there justified. His motive is good. I think he is different to the friends. And if you read um, Elihu's works, you'll probably immediately feel like, oh, it just sounds quite similar to the friends. I think he's saying the same things. As I said, I can't take you through it all now. Let me suggest to you just a couple of main differences that if you were to reread it again, think about this. Here are two major differences. Firstly, Job's friends, uh, this is how basically they're speaking to Job. You've sinned, so you're suffering. You've sinned, so you're suffering. This is Elihu. Not explicitly, but implicitly, This is what we get from his speeches. In your suffering, you're sinning. In your suffering, you are now sinning. So his friend said, you're sinning, that's why you're suffering. Elihu's not saying that. He's just saying, now that you are suffering, it's leading you to sin. The implication here is that in our wrestling with God, we have to be careful that we don't go too far, that we don't cross some line. Secondly, the other significant difference is Job's friend's theology runs something like this. God is just, therefore your suffering, Job, can only be punishment for your sin. God is just, so the only reason you could be suffering is it's your punishment for your sin. Elihu's theology... God is just. So your suffering could draw you nearer to God. God is just, but your suffering could draw you nearer to God. Elihu, similar to Job's earlier speeches, has this great picture of God. Uh, He says... um, Hey, youth, like you, I've just got things highlighted all over the place and didn't have it down in my notes. Here we go. How great is God beyond our understanding? The number of his years is past finding out. How great is our God beyond our understanding? So Elihu also has this picture that God is beyond our understanding. That's different to the friends. Now, we know that Job shared that sentiment. And in this... Elihu's exploring the possibilities that suffering could have some other purpose than just being seen for, uh, for punishment. That is there some other purpose for which God could redeem it? The implication of this is that being patient in suffering could actually transform us. If we could be patient in it, if we could somehow accept the reality of it. It is here. It's part of our life. If somehow we could see that God could be speaking to us through it. Henry Nouwen in The Wounded Healer, he says something that almost sounds strange. Ministers are not doctors whose primary task is to take away pain. Rather, they deepen the pain to a level where it can be shared. 
Rather, they deepen the pain to a level where it can be shared. In my um, training, I had to do um, CPE, clinical pastoral education. It was chaplaincy in a hospital. And I was in a room with somebody that was having a bone marrow transplant. Earlier in the, uh, I'd seen him earlier in my time there and he was very positive. He and his wife, very positive. He had all these posters of all these positive thoughts and words on posters all around in his room. Some weeks later, he was looking a very different man. And as I just was creating space for him to express that, he just started to, and his wife jumped in and brought it back to something positive. I, I could just see there was something crushed in him. In some ways, chaplains are seen as a nuisance as well. I think a lot of doctors would just like their patients to be positive. And yet this man needed to express something. Therefore, ministry is a very confrontational service. It does not allow people to live with illusions of immortality and wholeness. It keeps reminding others that they are mortal and broken, but also with that but also that with the recognition of this condition, liberation starts. And sometimes coming to that place of accepting our frailty, the broken and fallen world we live in, this is us sometimes being patient in suffering. But if we accept these implications of you know, not going too far and not crossing a line and, and being patient in suffering, well, all of a sudden, if you've been following this series, attention's now created with you because it hasn't been the thrust of what we've been saying. We're, I've been saying, lament, lament away, express it, let it out. Let God know how you feel. Now I'm saying, oh, hold on, whoa, whoa. Don't cross a line. What is this doublespeak? Andrew asked a question last week when he preached and I had to listen to the second part of his sermon again because there was something I knew that was profoundly true in what he said, but it jarred. He said, can we forgive God? Can we forgive God for bringing us into a world where we will suffer? I mean, theologically, that just doesn't make sense. Who, who are we to offer forgiveness to God? God's perfect. Can we forgive God for bringing us into a world where we will suffer? I've said lament. Andrew's saying, you know, can we forgive God for bringing us into a world where we will suffer? And in all this, we are wrestling with God. This is what Job is doing. And he's doing it in authenticity and genuineness. And now I'm saying, but don't go too far. Rather unhelpful, isn't it? And that's the end of the sermon. No. <laughs> so there's wrestling with God, and there's patient and suffering. Maybe instead of seeing them as uh, two things cancelling each other out, what if they are tensions? Sometimes we have tensions. And, and if we go too far in one direction, if we just wrestle with God, we run the risk of hardening our heart. 
we're just expressing how frustrated and how annoyed and how angry we can become so bent inwards on our pain and suffering that we might miss that there are other things bigger than that going on. And it might no longer be a lament before God before very long if we don't know something of what it means to be patient in suffering. Wrestling with God might be characterised by speaking or living out of our pain. I speak and I live out of my pain. I, this is how I feel. This is, how I, this is what I'm thinking, feeling. I speak and live out of my pain. It's a lament before God. Being patient in suffering might be characterised by speaking and living in the light of our pain. That is, there is maybe some level of acceptance and therefore, in the light of my pain, I might be able to see God speaking, hear God speaking. I might be able to appreciate or understand something, have a revelation, because I'm somehow accepting this. It's also characterised by holding on to or affirming our faith in God. The psalmists do it all the time. So if it sounds like double speak, they're there one minute. How long, O oh God? You are my refuge and my strength. I love you. They're going together all the time. That it is possible. God, I don't understand. But I have seen your faithful to, faithfulness to me in the past. I will hold to that. Whom else will I turn to, O oh God? that you can express faith and lament at the same time. And it's not about trying to find the middle point and just stay in the middle. Sometimes we might be up one end a little bit more. Other times we might be up the other end. But if we go too far in either end, we may end up in error. Elihu challenges us to be patient in suffering, to recognise God speaking to us in the midst of our pain. There was one who perfectly managed this tension. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 to 8, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Why could Jesus reverently submit? Because he believed that his father was good. That his father's will was ultimately what was best. But he did it with fervent cries and tears. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. It doesn't mean that Jesus needed to learn how to be obedient and so he needed to suffer. It's the idea of his obedience being perfected. But that doesn't mean that his obedience was imperfect. The the idea of perfect here is the idea of bringing to completion or fulfilment. And so we know that through Jesus' earthly ministry, he was obedient. But it found, his obedience found its fulfilment in death on a cross, brought to perfection. Uh, 
But who are we kidding? In the midst of our suffering and pain, we will cross the line over and over and over. I think God must have been testing me. I'm never allowed to stand over God's word, always have to come under it. And Over and over and over, we will fail. And over and over and over, I failed this week. At every moment of suffering, every moment of inconvenience. But take courage. For the one who was perfectly honest before God the Father and perfectly obedient in the midst of suffering is now in heaven as our mediator, our great high priest, and he prays for us. Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Therefore we are exhorted and encouraged. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If it sounded like I was saying, you know, God wants to teach you something through your suffering, listen. Sometimes that jars and it should. But what if you thought for a moment and took this picture? Rather than God is trying to teach you something, what if I told you that right now, right now, Jesus is praying for each one of you. He's praying before his Father for each one of you right now. What if you were to listen in? What if you would try to listen in on what Jesus is praying for you right now? Not some lesson to be learned. Jesus is for you. He wants you to be victorious in the midst of your suffering. What is he saying to you? right now. As he prays before his father, what is he saying? Can you hear him? 